Welcome back, listeners. And for those of you just joining in on the phone, we are glad to have you here. I'm Mila. And I'm Katie. And we are your hosts for the House of Apis podcast, a place for us to come together and discuss topics important to women and girls, and a space for us to invest in ourselves and the community. Today's conversation is focused on what is commonly called imposter syndrome, a phenomenon that was introduced by Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes in 1978. And according to Clance and Imes, imposter syndrome is an internal experience of intellectual phoniness that they say is most prevalent among high achieving women. But there's a challenge with the original research, as noted in a Harvard Business Review article that was recently out called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome by Rashika Tulshian and Jody Amburi, who note that the earlier research excluded the effects of systemic racism, classism, xenophobia, sexism, heterosexism, and other biases. In fact, Clance and Imes' original research sample was primarily white, middle to upper class women between the ages of 20 and 45 in a predominantly academic setting. So this is what we want to explore today. In essence, what is experienced by individuals who have imposter syndrome, how it manifests, the contributing factors, and some tips on what we can do if we experience it and how we can help create an environment that minimizes it. We'd also like to introduce a concept that we're calling environmental exclusion, which gets to what Tulshian and Buri discuss, the environmental factors that are both overt and possibly unconscious that make individuals feel like an imposter and outsider. And finally, imposter syndrome is most commonly referenced in regard to an individual's experience in a work context, but the fact is that we can experience this sensation in just about any context that we question our value because of internal or external signals we process. For example, there have been many articles written about what psychology today calls momposter syndrome, which they say is creating a record high level of stress in parents, particularly in mothers, because there's so much that parents are told that they should and should not do for their children. And the only standard is perfection. And we know how House of Apis feels about perfection. Yeah. So they call it should storm and is a key reason that parents also can exhibit features of imposter syndrome. The, all of that research is going to be noted on the uh, podcast notes, so you can review it yourself. But let's start with exploring exactly what came out from the original research in regards to imposter syndrome. Because while the sample and circumstances are problematic, the impact and its effect on an individual's self-worth, confidence and mental health are real. According to Clans and Imes, they found that these phenomena tended to be more prevalent in high-achieving women and seemed to fall into one of two groups with respect to early family history and how they were perceived by those closest to them. So either another family member or sibling was designated as the intelligent member of the family or they were designated superior in every way, intellect, personality, appearance and talents. The person who can do no wrong and can succeed at anything that they put their mind to. In either situation, the individual finds itself in a situation to overachieve, to either prove the premise wrong or to prove the premise right. And what Clans and Imes say is that no matter how much achievement they accomplish, there is always this fear of being exposed as fraud. According to another clinical research paper published in the Journal of Behavioral Science, it is estimated that 70% of the U.S. population has experienced what's known as imposter syndrome at some time in their life. The term stems from the study by psychologists Clance and Imes and focus on high-achieving women. 
Hence, why this is phenomenon is more often associated with women and even more specifically, those that are high achievers and BIPOC women. For those of you that are not familiar with the term, BIPOC uh, means black, indigenous and other people of color. But there is significant research that shows that this is also experienced by men and more so by BIPOC men. So what tends to happen when someone has experienced this? Clance and I say it tends to manifest in a few different ways. One, either the individual doubles down on diligence and hard work. This provides them payoff in the form of excellence performance and approval from perceived authority figures, right? So they throw themselves into the work. My work is going to validate that I am everything that I say I am or that you believe I am. But this becomes a ritual because there's always the fear of being found out. So there is this constant cycle of working harder, longer, smarter than others to continue to prove they belong. And most of us know a lot of that leads to burnout and all sorts of other things, right? The second way is an individual becomes a bit of an intellectual chameleon is what they say. So finding out what they believe the authority figures are interested in, want to hear, are passionate about, and their biases. And then this individual basically agrees with all of that. And they participate in re reinforcing that authority figure's beliefs, even if it contradicts with that individual's own beliefs, or if they have alternative ideas and approaches. Hmm. And then the third way is that an individual focuses on using charm and perceptiveness to win the approval of authority figures. So the aim is to be liked, as well as to be recognized as credible, in hopes that if the credibility comes into question, their likability will compensate. So this is what their study, remember it was on that select group of women, <laughs> this was what that was shaking out. So I'm curious, right? So we've given a bit of background on imposter syndrome itself. And I, I want to pause for Mila, for you and I to talk a little bit about what we've experienced or seen in our own careers or life. Again, we are a century combined. So what have we seen? <laughs> Whether it's our own experience feeling imposter syndrome ourselves or whether we've witnessed it, we've both led teams of people and we've had colleagues and stuff. So I'm curious, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you knew you were skilled and qualified yet doubted your ability? And what were those circumstances? And if you haven't felt that as well, have you seen that happen with others? I have experienced that many times. I think more so when I was more junior, at this moment, I'm more mindful and then I push that away. No, I'm, I'm, I'm qualified. I can do this. And I think it has a lot to do with taking uh, risks and then getting into challenges that you think, okay, this is good for me. I want to do this. But then at the end of the day, you are like a little bit scared. And then you feel that you are experiencing imposter syndrome. But it is yeah. like the fake it till you make it. Yeah. Kind of thing. The one thing though, and because of this research and what we already discussed is that it is interesting to, to me to maybe go back and think about why is it that I experience it? Yeah. So what are yeah. the causes is yeah. <laughs> that I experience yeah, was it? Was it yeah. all you or was there something else happening around there that started making you feel that way? That's why I think the article, the HBR article is intriguing. Like, we, we keep wanting to put it all on the person who's experiencing it and what's actually happening around it that might be causing it. Yeah, what is the environment? And also, why is it that that, that is a family history that actually was giving me that feeling at the beginning? Mm. Was it that I was superior in every way and my parents made <laughs> me feel that way? Which I am anyway. <laughs> You know, a family that's listening in, I would love for a side comment on whether you agree with that or not. 
<laughs> yeah, because I, because I don't think it was because another family member was designated the intelligent one. I think it was always me. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear from your brothers. Anyway. No, but I think <laughs> now seriously, <laughs> I, th I think that is actually good for people to actually go back and think about it. Uh, the other thing that is interesting when you look at this research is these different ways that people manifested. I think that is interesting because if I go back and I think about some people that I would maybe call like a little bit of brown nosers, then you think, oh, maybe it is that they yeah, were why? just, why were they doing it? And then you think that is because they want to please everybody, but then there's obviously this chance that they were also experiencing a little bit of the um, imposter syndrome. And I have seen that more in men than in women, by the way. Yeah. In my well, honest, you know, I just went through the certification to to use an assessment, and in there, it's talking about innate values and beliefs and drivers. And it's interesting because that one in particular that you call up, there are people that are actually motivated to please others. That is how they calibrate whether they're doing well or not. And mm -hmm. So some of these three options are probably what you end up seeing manifest when people are in this situation is probably like really deeply connected to their personal, their values, their beliefs, their what kind of gives them validation and what motivates them. So if it's pleasing others, they're going to double down potentially in that intellectual chameleon. If it's about being liked, they're going to double down on that charming. If it's about their competence, they're going to double down on that work. So there's that to your point of like, I kind of want to go back and reflect what from those things. There was, you had said something interesting. I'm going to actually answer the question in a moment, but right right now I'm interested. <laughs> you had talked about fake it till you make it kind yeah. of thing. How do you personally feel in those moments? Because I, I mean, I'll admit I, there are times where I'm like, I'm just going to fake it till I make it. But in my head, I love learning. So mm -hmm. if I feel like I'm over 50% there, I can get comfortable because I feel like I'm going to learn it. I'll go, can I learn it faster than I have to deliver it? <laughs> and if the answer to that is yes, then I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. But if the answer in my brain says no, I'm like, shit, <laughs> what did I get myself into? <laughs> exactly. But I think I, I do the same and I pause to learn it. I, I pause to find out what is it that I need to complete or that is, and for the theme of our uh, previous podcast, there is a moment where I ask for help. And then in my new position, and I was coming from, from journalism and from advertising, and all of a sudden I needed to work in marketing and it was a lot more financial skills that were required of me. And I went to a friend of mine that she was working in the finance department. And I said, I need to go with you through all of these documents. How do you read a PNL? And I was very junior, but I really wanted to learn. So I went to somebody that I knew that had the knowledge. And then that is how you fake it till you make it, because there is, in a way, there is some, you have some knowledge and you know where it's coming from, mm -hmm. but you are not saying, okay, I know everything. So yeah. I would say this is, I, I would, understand my limitations and I would go learn whether it was from a friend from a book and at that moment there was no Google <laughs> <laughs> oh there was a Google in the making but when I was very junior I would go to a friend and that is how you would I, I would learn it so yeah, yeah that, that is how I did it yeah that would be back in the day when you had to flip through binders in your office oh yes 
and try and deconstruct what somebody else did in order to learn it. The, the, as I think about it, like personally for my own experience, and there's two things that pop up to me. So one, you had mentioned like early in career. So I stylistically, by the way, I'm going to double down on diligence and work. I'm going to show you that I can deliver and that's going to prove it. And depending on the company culture, or even like your, whether this is in your family or your social circle or whatever, depending on the culture of that, right? It's not a high recognition culture. Nobody's going to tell you. You're not going to get the signals that your work is, that you're doubling down is actually proving what you're trying to prove. And so I think about like, I'm a highly intuitive person and I can, I, I, rely on my gut a lot. And I think as I've gotten older, I've learned it's because I'm picking up and taking information in different ways. But in my early 20s, I didn't realize that about me stylistically. So I was constantly, but I know this is the way to do it. I'm trying to keep you from messing up or I'm trying to keep us from having extra work. And it made me question a lot of things. It made me question whether I was in the right role. It made me question whether I was working with the right people. It made me question whether I actually, do I actually know what I'm talking about? Because, mm-hmm. the, because the thing was, is I couldn't articulate why my gut was saying that. So that was part of my problem. So one, I'm trying to prove myself, but I actually don't have the language to articulate it, which then ended up stressing me out even more and making me feel less like, shouldn't I be able to throw a model out there? Or shouldn't I be able to put like some business rationale? All Mm -hmm. I could say was, I'm just telling you, it's the way (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm believing in it, but you should believe in me. I had a leader who said to me, Hey, I actually implicitly trust your, your gut. But you've got to find a way to articulate it because people mm-hmm. can't see it. They can't touch it. They can't understand it. And for people aren't, that aren't seeing and feeling the things that you're doing, you have to find a way to articulate it. So for me, that was a big thing and helped me shift. And once I could find that language, I stopped feeling like I was having to double down with this work. So that was more of a junior thing. That's almost like a maturity and a sophistication. And you find those ways to navigate. But I will say more recently in my career, I worked in an organization that was just chock full of really smart people, like super, super smart people. Everybody was super smart, like the top in their field. Everybody has imposter syndrome <laughs> because <laughs> right, like, there's still a desire to be to there's still career ladders and there's still promotions. And so it was just interesting to work in an organization where everybody in some way or shape or form was probably feeling this and feeling like they had to prove themselves. And I found myself constantly saying, I have 25 years of experience in this. And at some point I went, if I have to keep saying that, I think I need to leave. Like, (laughs) like And for me, like it just was a recognition that this was not the right culture for me to be in and to find a a new way to explore so I could be more myself because it was I just every day I felt like I was having to prove myself or to to validate my existence in this organization. Mm -hmm. And then when you start sitting back and looking and going, wow, everybody is doing this. There's there's something about this organization's culture that is creating that kind of environment. So those are kind of my things I would contribute to this. And I think to your point, I've most definitely either seen colleagues or even leaders or definitely some direct reports who are questioning their whether I'm supposed to be this and you see it manifest with different types of behavior from that perspective. 
I am curious, Mila, with your stories, like how do you find solid ground for yourself? Or do you still struggle with that? How do you navigate yourself out of this situation or at least get yourself to a place where you go, yeah, no, I rock at this. And I I know that I can do this and I'm comfortable in that. I had the luck to find myself in places where I always found either a mentor or a colleague that would be supportive in a way, in any which way. So when you're in an organization and it is differently, obviously, if you are working on your own as a, as a freelancer, I also experienced that when I was working in different organizations, I always had somebody that I could form some bond and be able to talk and discuss things and then say, okay, am I doing things right the right track am i what do you think about this this is the way that i'm approaching this because sometimes and especially when you are a manager or a leader of a department it is more difficult because at least for myself i don't want to embed that fear in a way or that feeling that you don't know whether you are in the right uh, track with the organization or the people that are reporting to you because they are looking up to you in a way to guide. But if you have senior people that are on a different level, then you can be a bit more open and discuss these things. However, in the organization that I'm in right now, I'm very open with my direct report, the senior level. And I've just talked to them and I said, this is the way that I'm thinking, especially because I'm newer in the organization and people have been there for, I don't know, six, eight years. So then I, I bounce ideas with other people. So that is the way that I have, I have done it. And again, I think that is also looking into examples of other people, how they have navigated certain things and doing a little bit of research. So if I feel that I'm out of my depth in a topic, then I just go now you can Google, so then now you can say, okay, I, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but just uh, a strategy for, uh, I don't know, flying a plane, and then you can go on the internet and find out how you can yeah. do something, yeah. and at least you can start... Uh, or get a uh, simulator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can start doing something and finding out about, about something. I think for me... And right, it, it also does come like you can experiment. You're, you're, you're speaking to this as well, too. Like the moments that you have an opportunity to experiment a little bit with courage with individuals that you feel are safe to do so. And I had a moment, I want to say it was probably in my mid-30s from a career-wise perspective, where something just, it did not go how it was supposed to go. It didn't go how I promised it would go. And I realized it pretty quickly, and but it was out there. So I had to pull it back. And the individual that was going to experience it first with their client group is somebody I have huge respect for that I consider a mentor and learned a lot from. And that, that desire to not let that person down, I picked up the phone and said, it's wrong. I messed up. I got to pull it back. Mm -hmm. I've already sent you a message you can send out to your client group to give them a heads up that there's something new coming out. But like, I really apologize, but I'm mm -hmm. going to fix this kind of thing. And it was mm -hmm. like, okay, all right. Thanks yeah. for plan B. And right. I know you'll go out and fix it. Take care yeah. of it and let me know in any other updates. And yeah. it was interesting because in that moment I went, 
oh, wait a minute, actually owning when you don't know something or you don't do something right actually helps build your credibility. I want to be right. I want to do, I want to do yeah, yeah, yeah. work. But it actually was a really big eye opener for me on just owning where I don't know something and yeah. reaching out. And that in itself is a little liberating, kind of gets to this concept of growth mindset versus fixed mindset. How do you open it up to go? I'm not perfect. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. Nobody is. Even if you had all the knowledge, nobody's perfect. So everybody yeah. could make a mistake. Everybody. Yeah. Sometimes I say I work and I say to my team and I work for games and puzzles. So <laughs> I just say to my team, we are just selling games. We are not saving a life. We are not diffusing a bomb. This is not, it's, it's okay to make a mistake. You just have to learn from it and move on. Yeah. So nobody is perfect. And, and that is something that we have the capability to, to do and realize and then manage now in a better way than we did before because we have been learning. So it's also our responsibility as leaders to help the people that are coming into the workforce. However, the one thing that is also important to notice is, and it was in the research or in one of the articles, that is not only on work, and we are yeah. maybe focusing too much on work, but it's also yeah. in, in real life. I was talking to somebody uh, recently and He's a young woman, she's married and she has kids that she was saying there was a moment during the pandemic with the kids at home and work. And she said, I'm feeling that I'm not a good mom and I'm not a good wife. And because there are so many things that are stressing her out and she's trying to plan and to everything is okay, but I'm not, and I'm struggling. Yeah. And that happens in, in real life and not only with mothers, with everybody, I think. So I know you and I, and we're kind of also tapping into some of the things we'll talk about later about what can you do? Because I think what you're talking about with what you're doing as a leader, you're creating space for people to learn and grow and yeah. that it's okay to mess up as long as you're growing from it. So are you creating a culture and an environment of growth? And I would say, are you doing that within your family? Are you doing that within your social circle? How do you create that? We're going to talk about exclusion from a gender, from race, all of those things. We'll talk about that a bit as well in the next segment, but there's also ways just in the dynamics and the culture that you create about whether you're creating an environment that demands perfection or whether you're creating an environment that is prioritizing growth and learning. Yeah. So yes, we have a lot to cover. And now I think that we should move to our compelling question of this episode. The compelling question for those of you that um, are joining us today for the first time is a time where we ask a pointed question that connects to our topic in so, some way, shape or form. So today's compelling question connects to our ability to recognize when we deserve accolades, knowing that we rocked something, that we actually <laughs> did something great. This is something that happens with individuals experiencing imposter syndrome it can often be caused by other factors. But I'm curious about how our listeners respond to these questions as well, because as women, we need to be much better at this in general. So our compelling question, do you have a hard time accepting compliments, praise and recognition? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. No, I am. I'm really bad at this. I, I will 
actually potentially inside go, yeah, I did a darn good job. But I also am my worst critic and I will immediately see the things I could have done better. And if I know it was a really good job, I will immediately see the things that I could do differently or better or shift or I should have said different words or I want to do over with that conversation or those types of things. So I, it is hard for me. I'll accept them. <laughs> But it's hard for me to actually hear them, if that makes sense, because it gets lost in the noise in my head that's telling me all the ways I could have done it better. Um, But do you accept it? Uh, do you, when people start saying, oh, that was a great job, do you say yes or do you say, oh, no, you dismiss it in a little or not? I dismiss it in a way. <laughs> I, so I consciously, in probably the last decade, been forcing myself to say, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that because I was always, oh, no, no, that was the team or, oh, oh, I appreciate the compliment, but really it was just the right place, the right time or, or, oh, it wasn't like, oh, it was nothing like, but I, and one, I don't like to be publicly recognized. So that's a whole other thing. It also has a lot to do with the place that you do it. I'm very awkward in public recognition. That's the introvert in me. But yeah, because as I am hearing you give me a compliment, I have a rolling list in the back of my head of what I would have done different and could have done better. But I have, I, which creates a lot of internal stress. So I have, as I've gotten older and I've been really focusing on where I put my energy, I actually have a narrative in my head happening going, it's not worth the energy. Move on. Like you did a good job. Move on. But I have to have a dialogue with myself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the voices in my head are saying one thing. So I, I am personally trying to get better at it. So is it, is it the same when it's a compliment about, let's say, the way you look or no. your, your hair or oh, anything? Oh, this old thing? Like, or, oh, <laughs> like, oh, I love your dress. Oh, I got it for $5.99 on the value rack. Like, I always <laughs> have to say something on it. Oh, I love your haircut. Oh, I'm looking a little poofy today, though, but thank you. Right? Like, no, I, it does not yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You come into my house and you say, oh, your house is beautiful. I'll be like, oh, don't look at the dog hair on the floor. You might not have even seen the dog hair on the floor, but now you do because I pointed it out to <laughs> you. <laughs> you can't accept a compliment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for me is in a, in a way I I want the compliment, so I look for the compliment. So I don't have a hard time accepting it. I actually have a hard time if I don't get it. So it could be from if I do a presentation and it's a very important presentation. If I don't get any comment afterwards, I just need that validation. Mm. In a way, and then I ask a colleague, "What do you think? How did it go?" Because it also, for me, the non-news is not that it's not bad news. It's actually, it's just, just kills me not knowing whether it's no information. You have no, no information. information. Exactly. So I don't have any feedback. So I need the feedback. Yeah. And it's not, it's not necessarily, well, it is in a way a compliment. So when I feel that I kill it, I want to know that I kill it. You know? Oh, to that point, your Instagram post this morning was very fun. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps oh, I thank did, you. Perhaps I did not appreciate it enough, but it was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, but I do like that. When I kill it, I really like it. I get very excited and I read, if it's an email, I read it again or I play it in my head mm. again, like people saying that to me. So sometimes, and, and I know that I do it sometimes like 
in person as well, like in person, everything is in person, but I mean, uh, in personal uh, uh, relationships or situations, like for example, I cook something. And then if nobody says anything like, oh, it's nice or whatever, and I thought it was nice, then I would say, and do you really like it? <laughs> I need a little more details. Yeah, I need more value. what you liked about it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know why it is, but I, I do need a little bit of the validation. So I'm okay. I'm okay accepting. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for it. Actually, yeah, somehow. but if, if you don't get it, that's when you go into your inner monologue. Yeah, but yeah, like, did I do it? Was it worth the time? Did anybody yeah. care? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay, but, yeah. but it's also, for example, when I cook, like if I cook, I don't cook often, but when I do, I really like for people to enjoy it. And then I also need to know whether I can repeat it or not, whether it's something that is worth repeating or it's just a recipe that just kill it and don't do it anymore. <laughs> but anyway, so that's... When I cook, I'm so surprised if it comes out well that I literally go, hey, this is <laughs> <laughs> what a place that I will <laughs> I had so such low personal expectations. That well, may, maybe you would say I just put it on the microwave. <laughs> well, for some things, yes, but I'm usually actually pretty darn impressed with myself. <laughs> not something. It's not something that I put out there that I'm great at, so that I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's our compelling question of this episode. As always, you'll see it posted on our social media channels and also on our online community via www.houseofapis.com. So we want to continue uh, this discussion by introducing the concept we mentioned earlier that we're calling environmental exclusion. There's probably other terms that could be applied to this. And we'd love if, if for any of you that have discovered research on this, we would feel free to share it with us either through our social media channels or through the website, you can contact us. But it's a term we're applying to the external environment, the culture, the values that surround an individual that could signal or reinforce or just flat out tell someone that they are an imposter. And either that creates or adds to an individual's sense of feeling like they don't belong or that they are underqualified for a situation or any other myriads of ways that this can manifest in an individual. So the challenge we have with imposter syndrome, as it is traditionally discussed, is that it treats the experience as an internal occurring phenomenon only. So it's basically for yourself. The reality is that it is more often one of many responses to the external signals that are in the cultural norms, biases, racism, sexism, etc. Whether it's done overtly or unconsciously, something about the environment is sending signals to the individual that say, you don't belong. This is the box you belong in. <laughs> and what are you doing here? And those of us that experience this internalize it and look inside for the solution when the real issue could rest quite heavily on the external forces. So there is a BBC article titled Why Imposter Syndrome Hits Women and Women of Color Harder. And they quote uh, the clinical psychologist Emily Hu, who says, we are more likely to experience imposter syndrome if we don't see many examples of people who look like us or share our background who are clearly succeeding in our field. And it makes sense when you look around you and you see who is rewarded, who is in a leadership position or power and who makes the decision. And you don't see anyone who looks like you or has your background. 
it absolutely could influence your self-perception of value and potential in a group or in an organization. There was also a, another article that we found by Ebony McGee for University World News, and it was called Imposter Syndrome? No, just racism. And she shares the popular notion of imposter syndrome obscures the effects of structural racism. Too often, Black people and other people of color are placed in situations where they're made to feel like imposters, as if they don't belong. And they may accept the pop psychology diagnosis that they have imposter syndrome. The problem with this all too frequent self-diagnosis is that the sense of being an imposter isn't in the minoritized person's head. It's in the structural racism that they are forced to confront. And Ebony is spot on. You know, whether, like she says, it's structural racism, sexism, heterosexism, ageism, ableism, when you are the other, or like Susan from our podcast three discussed of often being the only, you absolutely can start to have thoughts and feelings that you don't belong, have what it takes, that you're the wrong fit, quote unquote, insert feeling here as to how you are experiencing this. So in my personal experience, I've been an HR professional for decades, a leader, I have most definitely seen this. So I, I wanted to just pause for a moment to discuss what we've seen and or experienced relative to the effects of bias, overt or unconscious in regard to labeling someone as having imposter syndrome. I, I mean, all too many times, oh, that person has imposter syndrome. I know I've done it mm -hmm. and not pause to maybe think about the situation. So Mila, I wanted to start with you, whether it's at work or it's social or when you were in school, what is Ben, your experience, or what have you witnessed in regard to what we're calling environmental exclusion? When I first uh, read this, uh, preparing for the recording of the podcast, there was an example that came to my mind. And that was in an organization in a, uh, that I worked for uh, years ago. And I was part of the Northern Europe organization based here in Europe. Uh, the headquarters were in the US. And we had to prepare some kind of uh, big marketing initiative for the brand that we were doing. And every region was preparing a big initiative and they were going to be presented to a jury of leaders in the organization. And that initiative was going to be rolled out worldwide for mm -hmm. this company. Mm -hmm. There were many initiatives from all over the world. The finalists were presented in, in a panel in a meeting that I attended in the US. What I realized was that the only finalists that made the cut were all from English speaking countries. Mm. So all of the initiatives that actually made it, there were a lot of semi-finalists that had the presentation. So you could see the presentations beforehand. And there were some really great initiatives from Argentina, from Germany, from Spain. And the ones that were presented were Australia, the UK, and two from the US. Mm -hmm. Nobody that had English as a second language yeah. after the second round. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, it was not that the initiative that was actually presented was better than any of the others. It was that they didn't really get the nuance of the pronunciation of the people when they were presenting. I felt so excluded. And then everybody from international because for us, we were international. We were yeah. like, oh, okay, if you don't speak English as a first language, then they don't take you. And that was so unbelievable for me and so heartbreaking. And, and I had a, a direct report to somebody in the US. And then I, I went to that person and I said, you know what? 
you didn't pick anybody that was not an English speaker. And that feels wrong. So I think that for everybody that was in that environment, that it was not English as a first language, I think that was very much one of these situations, that it was an exclusion. I I saw something similar in an organization I worked at where a very qualified individual who either just happened to not come from a Western country, English is his mm-hmm. second language, to a U.S. person would have had a very strong accent, kept being put to the side. And I'm like, I, I don't know why this resume keeps getting moved. This person is extraordinarily qualified. And it was a concern about people being able to understand them. I'm like, that's a whole other issue, right? That's That has nothing to do about the person's ability to do this job. So I've seen what you're describing play out as well, too. One of the things that you know, it just in what I do from a consulting perspective with HR transformation, a lot of what I see as well too is, right, like I really, I want to have a diverse workforce, diverse in age, in gender, in race, in backgrounds, in socioeconomic. And for some, like it's because they they know they have to do it now. But for others, it's actual genuine intent to do that. But they've done nothing to their culture and environment that actually makes it an inclusionary organization that as you start finding these fantastic people that you've created an environment that actually makes them feel like they belong and doesn't treat them like another. So that's just one thing I'll say from that perspective. So yeah. So why do we share all of this? What we are saying is that the cause of what is called imposter syndrome is not limited to the internal machinations, so to your internal uh, dialogue of uh, you should do this or you should do that or uh, what are you doing here? You don't know what you are doing. So in some cases, it may be more internal because it also depends on the person. But in many other cases, it's most likely a combination of external signals and how they are being internalized that is causing this response. So we will discuss some things that we can all do to try and minimize the effects on ourselves and others. But first, it's time for our did you know segment. And this one is in the spirit of small but powerful actions that we can take to boost our own confidence. Yeah, for this, did you know, we actually, we dusted off an oldie but goodie. And and for those of you uh, just joining us, our did you know segment is where we'll bring up topics, issues, opportunities that we think are either important and or timely, but potentially not mainstream. And this one actually was mainstream. It actually was created quite a bit of energy. In June 2012, a social psychologist named Amy Cuddy, which many of you might have heard of before, she presented a talk at a TED Global Conference about how body language can shape who you are. And in this conversation, the power pose became the talk of the town. And what she shared is that when individuals engage in a power pose for two minutes, their testosterone rises, which is a dominance hormone, and their cortisol lessens, which is a stress hormone. So in doing so, we feel individually while we're doing this, that we can take on the challenges in front of us, like we can do it. And while individuals who do protective or shrinking poses, like falling into yourself, Mila's laughing because we can see each other as we do this, and I'm <laughs> doing the <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, She's hugging herself. We feel we can take on the challenge that's in front of us. So while individuals who do protective or shrinking poses had drops in testosterone and rises in cortisol, causing the opposite effect. 
So Cuddy's study showed that through altering body language, a person could change their life in a, a very meaningful way. She described it as her free, no-tech life hack. And it's particularly relevant to anyone who struggles with confidence and self-esteem. So it's these non-verbal expressions of dominance and power that influence how we feel about ourselves. And in her talk, Cuddy referenced an important chain of events, that our bodies can change our minds, our minds can change our behavior, and our behavior can change the outcome of a situation. So by telling yourself you feel powerful, you eventually will. And as Cuddy said, don't fake it till you make it, fake it till it becomes you. So there you go, Yay. you needed to change yeah. your thing. So a change in your body language could make all the difference. So one of the most mainstream examples of this, actually, Mila, as a, a fan of this show, one of the mainstream examples of this is the Wonder Woman pose, which has been used by several of the female leads on the TV show Grey's Anatomy for when they prepare to go into a long or difficult surgery. So Mila, I know you're a fan of the show because when you came to Seattle, we had to do all things Grey's Anatomy. We only do the ferry boats. We did only do the ferry. But have you ever tried doing the power pose, like getting ready for something? Yeah, I I have I haven't tried the Wonder Woman pose, although I have seen Dr. Amelia Shepard do it oh, on yes, Grey's Anatomy. Yes. But I have done that this pose that when you are when you actually sit up or just put your shoulders back. I think that is a poster of like being grounded. Yeah. And and I do that when I feel okay. For example, also when I'm presenting, I have to be standing up. I see so many people that are sitting down doing a presentation, especially now that you have the Zoom meetings and everything, then obviously you are sitting in front of camera. But I even when I'm in a bigger meeting room, I try to stand up because I feel like I'm grounded and I'm, you know, yeah. powerful and I'm command commanding power or something. So then uh, yes, I really I, I really do that. Yeah, we, I'm not, I've been guilty of doing the Wonder Woman pose a couple times. I'm not sure that's my go-to thing, but the, I think your point, right, opening up that posture, having good posture and opening up kind of your kind of torso from that. What yeah. I do, I do a mental Wonder Woman. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. the, right, because I'm introverted. So I get my energy from inside and I actually, especially like, moments of importance for me, I will visualize the whole thing happening and that I rocked it. Like yeah. I will see myself be successful. There is usually some kind of soundtrack to that visualization that I do because <laughs> I'm very driven by music as well. But no, that's what I do. And especially early on in my facilitation career, before I ever would teach a new class, like a lot of people say, teach it to a mirror. And I would do that. And there's, right. I just, <laughs> actually didn't help me at all. No. So I actually would just sit in my car and I would see myself doing that class and I rocked it and I did it well and people learned. And so the next day when I had to go teach it for the first time, it really wasn't the first time because I had actually already taught it once. So that's my version of a mental Wonder Woman pose. <laughs> yeah, 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 I do a lot of breathing as well. And like maybe sometimes I do a quick, there is this calm in the Calm app, there is this uh, emergency meditation and there is like a three minute emergency meditation. And then you like just basically just breathe. I do that sometimes as well. And that is a way to get grounded. But I think the, the pose and the opening your shoulders and the standing upright, that is for me very important. So that was today's Did You Know? 
and that is dusting off a classic for all of you, but something that individuals who may experience moments of self-doubt could try before stressful situations to get you into the zone. You can also try the tips that Katie and I just discussed. Please check out the podcast notes where we have the articles and TED Talk posted for you and jump into the conversation on our social media channels or community conversation on the Help Us Appies website where we'd love to hear your stories on using power poses. Our final topic for today's discussion on imposter syndrome focuses on what we can do when we feel that sense of not belonging or feeling like a fraud. But also, what can we do to create a community or culture that eliminates environmental exclusion, lessening the imposition of imposter syndrome on others? According to a Psychology Today article, they give nine ways that we can combat imposter syndrome when we feel that we are experiencing it. So the first one is an easy one, but is knowing that the feeling is normal. So everyone from students to Nobel Prize winners have expressed feeling this way. I would like to know who was the Nobel Prize winner that actually said that and recognized it. That would be very cool. Yeah, to we'll go look this up. Yeah, to maybe your point we, of <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. And by the way, right? Like, but it's not easy. <laughs> no, exactly. It's a, it's a like a it's common simple. sense, simple yeah. but not easy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's true. So, for those of us that have felt it and moved through it, speak up and share your experience. We did today. You could help someone else feel a sense of relief, and that is not just them. But that's true. Like you were talking to other people in your organization. I mean, it does yeah. actually. It does take a little pressure off when you talk to somebody who is doing what you want to do and they're like, oh gosh, I feel that all the time. Or I used to feel that all the time here. Like, oh, I'm normal. <laughs> so the second one is to remind yourself of all that you have accomplished and not just a CV, which often just focus on work related to a job application, but keep a running list of all the things you have accomplished, whether they're big or small. And also if you keep letters of recommendations or emails with some uh, recognition, awards, rewards, thanks, reread them is actually a great reminder uh, to yourself of what you have done and what you have accomplished. Another point is to tell uh, someone what you are experiencing, someone you trust, a friend, a teacher, a close colleague, somebody that could help you. However, if they tell you to that they discounted and they say that is not really uh, something that you should worry about, Maybe you should think about who you are talking to because that is a valid concern that you have. So make sure that you are talking to somebody that is uh, giving validity to you and is supporting you in the right way. The other thing is seeking out a mentor, finding someone who you can learn from for guidance and navigation, especially someone who may have had or still is doing, is navigating the same path or experience as you did. The other thing is to pay forward and the other way around. So to teach, why don't you become a mentor? And then if you see that there are some people that are going through the same thing, maybe you can invest in developing others and you'll recognize your value and expertise. And remember at House of Appis, everyone's a teacher, everyone's a learner. Yes, exactly. Then remember, it's okay not to know what you're doing. As we said before, not everybody's perfect. Not everybody's going to know everything. And this one is probably harder to do than the others because it's what stresses you. And that is something that it is one of the things that we overwork in order to know everything and be perfect. But we all have superpowers and we all have things that are not and then are limitations. So let's celebrate what we have and let's learn 
on the other ones. The other thing is expect initial failure. Very few of us rode a bike on our first attempt. What is that you say? I always call my first drive a Frankenstein document. Is yeah. that what you say well, all the time? I do things for work. Like I always have a rough draft and I just call it Frankenstein. I know it's floppy and it needs to be <laughs> refined, but I got to get my ideas out there first. And so for me, there's some grace. And especially if I'm doing a review, I'm like, can I have you look at my Frankenstein document? Because once I have all the concepts ready, I'm going to go out there and do that. Much like you probably didn't ride your bike in your first pass. My first draft of a document is usually not right. And it's okay. <laughs> that is like the theory of the first pancakes, right? The first pancake that you make in a batch is always going to be a crappy pancake. And then afterwards, they're going to come round Lovely. and fluffy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that is a great example. A great example. <laughs> the other thing is, especially for those that are around children, uh, praise effort in children. So put value in the learning and the mistakes as well, because you learn from those and the energy it takes to pursue new skills and talents. And that is something that will help them. Lastly, but uh, certainly not least, keep a little imposter syndrome in your pocket. It's always good to be able to balance off your confidence with a bit of humility. We always see all these people that think that they can do everything, and they sometimes they are wrong. And then not knowing your limitations actually might be a little bit of a, of a blind side. I would wonder if you're not scared of anything, I have healthy respect in being fearless, but I do kind of wonder if you're growing, if there's not anything that's giving you a little bit of butterflies in your stomach or making you a little nervous, right? Are you actually pushing yourself? Because for me, it's a growth thing, but yeah, I think it, it's psychology today, right? So it's mainstream, but I think there's a lot of really good morsels in here that can be helpful as you navigate. I think the other thing, getting to the, the environmental exclusion, in addition, it's important. And especially for those of us who get to experience the world through the privilege of race or gender or wealth or so on, for us to create an environment that is addressing and removing systems of bias and structural disadvantage. That means we need to speak up. We need to address systems and processes that impede inclusion. We need to educate ourselves. There is plenty of information out there for us to go get curious and learn, but educate ourselves on how implicit bias and systemic discrimination shows up and impacts those around us and how we play a part in its manifestation and sustainment. And so because of this, we ask um, that when you find yourself thinking, oh, she has imposter syndrome or, oh, he totally has imposter syndrome, <laughs> we'd like you to consider doing at least the three following things. The first one, keep it to yourself before <laughs> you go and learn more. Um, you know, once a label or a statement like that is out there, it creates a life of its own. And so now yeah. all of a sudden, the next thing is that instead of looking at this person as an individual navigating a situation or a circumstance or an environment, there's somebody with imposter syndrome. Keep it to yourself kind of thing from as far as using labels. But then ask yourself, why do I actually think this? Why? actually, why have I gone there about this individual? What am I observing that makes me believe, believe this? And why might this actually be happening? And then before you start listing all the reasons why that person may be internally manifesting imposter syndrome, ask yourself, what is it about the environment that could be causing this? Is something happening that would create a situation that can make an individual feel this way? Which, Mila, to what you were saying, right? The question for us looking back on our, you know, like, is going back and going, hey, I know I had this situation happen, but let me actually really look at that situation mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. So we ask that you resist the urge to quote unquote analyze people first. 
but analyze the environment. And if the environment is an influence to the situation and what could you do to make a difference in this person's environment? We'll revisit this topic in the future with guests to discuss their personal experiences with imposter syndrome and or environmental exclusion and the different places it shows up, like at work, at school, as a parent, et cetera as well as its impact on mental health and well-being. This is a topic we could talk about for quite a while, I believe. But at this time, we now need to transition to our favorite part of each podcast, which is... The segment that is called It Doesn't All Suck. It Doesn't All Suck. Okay, so for today's segment, It Doesn't All Suck, is a segment in two parts. We want to congratulate and highlight the accomplishments of two women who I certainly hope do not feel imposter syndrome. Or maybe they did when they started. Yeah. Yeah. The first of them is to celebrate the appointment of Lawrence Descartes. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but she is the first woman at the helm of the Louvre in Paris. In Paris. In its 228th year history. So Lawrence is the first woman who ever chaired the, the museum, the Louvre Museum in Paris. She is most definitely should not have imposter syndrome in this role because she has quite an amazing resume and is the current president of the Musée de Versailles and the Musée de l'Orangerie. I'm sorry to all my French uh, friends or to the people that speak French because I know I quite suck on it, but okay, sorry. And she was appointed as the new president director of the Louvre by French President Emmanuel Macron in late May. According to a statement from the French Culture Ministry, the new director's priorities would include fostering a dialogue between ancient art and the contemporary world and broadening the museum's audiences with particular attention to young people. Congratulations to Lawrence and for breaking the glass ceiling at the Louvre, which, which would is be like literal, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I cannot believe that there was never a woman as a as a chair for that museum. Two hundred twenty years, unbelievable. The second, we're doing a twofer in this episode on it doesn't all suck um, because the second is to celebrate that after fifteen years, the amazing Miss Diana Ross is releasing a new album. I'm a huge fan, so this is a big deal. This is like probably more about me. <laughs> <laughs> More about you than about Diana Ross? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I'm going to share with. But this is her first release since her 2006 record, I Love You, and her first album of original material in almost 22 years. It was recorded entirely during the COVID-19 lockdown. It's a 13-track album that will be released on September 10th. But she's given us a little bit of a sneak peek with the upbeat title track, which we have included the link in our podcast notes. And so we'll put that in there, but congratulations to Miss Ross. I have listened several times, but Mila, do you, do you know of Diana Ross? I don't want to assume. Yeah, I know of Diana Ross <laughs> and I love her and I love her daughter as well. <laughs> yes, I, yes, yes. I, Tracy Ellis Ross. Oh, yes. I love all her early stuff with the Supremes, but I'm going to be honest. I don't know if she would consider these her favorite, but but I do. I have to admit my guilty pleasure is in listening to the songs Muscles and Mirror Mirror. I used to roller skate to these songs in my basement. <laughs> well, I'm the cheesy one. Of course, for me, it will be, do you know where you're going to? Oh. That is my, um, maybe a little bit more cheesy. 
that's not cheesy. That's like classic. Yeah, it's like, totally classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> I'm like, I want myself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I hope this is not breaking any copyright laws. Yeah. And I, I don't think so, because I don't think our voices... Uh, <laughs> no, no. Any she just might ask us to stop singing because <laughs> of how little it sounds like the actual song. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to uh, to listen to, to her record. We'll put the links to all of those that we referenced in, in the podcast notes in case you're wanting to explore a little bit of that. But, but this it doesn't all suck and so congratulations to Laurence and to Ms. Ross on their accomplishments yeah yes so this episode has been very interesting and I think that we have spoken a lot I cannot uh, believe that we are already in at the end of it yeah. so yeah and as always in each episode we give our audience an ask something to do for personal growth of or self-awareness on our topic today in the spirit of our did you know segment and the wonder woman pose we're curious what other actions and activities our listeners are doing to pump themselves up or get into the right mindset to take on a challenge face a day be their best face their fears so our ask is to consider what you do and share it with the rest of the community we are always interested in learning new tips and tricks and would love for you to share what works for you. We'll put the question out there on social media and look forward to seeing what you all have as tips. So then we can share and learn and also apply them. That's it for this episode. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode where we'll begin our exploration of women in leadership, the behaviors and values that make women so effective as leaders, some examples that we could learn from and why we're constantly being trained to adapt to our environment versus being encouraged to adapt the environment. So in the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast. We would love to have you as a frequent flyer and join the conversation on the House of Appas social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd still love to understand what matters most to you as we build our house together. So please visit us at houseofapis.com to participate in our community survey. We have some exciting things coming to our community in the fall. We'd love to have you have an opportunity to shape that. So until next time, good morning from Seattle. And good evening from Amsterdam. Goodbye. Ha, 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 ha.